Well, good morning. <clears throat> it is a pleasure for me to be here this morning with you, uh, and in fact, a very special delight for me, as uh, I didn't realize when I would come here that Pastor Ron was being uh, reinstated and called back to this church. Uh, pastor Ron was actually my pastor when I was about this big, uh, back in Bakerview in Abbotsford, uh, and so I got to just enjoy his ministry. In fact, his wife even taught me how to play piano. Um, I can no longer play piano, but she did teach me. And so it is a joy to be able to be here and to be able to minister and to bring the Word of God. So if you have a Bible with you, please uh, open up to the book of John. If you have been here at Central Community for the past number of weeks, you'll know that we've been working through the book of John. And this morning, we are in John chapter 16. So please find your way there. And as you go, it is also Mother's Day today. And so I wanted to begin just by sharing uh, a story of a very famous mother from church history. Her name is Monica. <clears throat> and Monica is known for, for really a number of different things, but mostly she is known as a woman of prayer. She was a woman who was persevering in prayer, and especially for her family. You see, Monica was not actually born into a Christian home. She was born into a non-Christian home, but heard the gospel at a very early age, and she accepted Jesus as her Savior. However, her parents, not being Christians, as she grew up, they actually they married her off. This was a long time ago. It was back in the 4th century. And so her parents married her off to a non-Christian. He was a guy of a good stature, and so they thought that's who they're going to marry her off to. And in fact, her husband turned out not only just to be an unbeliever, but very cold towards the gospel. In fact, he had a very hard heart and didn't want to talk about Christianity, didn't really have any interest in the faith of his wife. And so Monica began to pray. She began to pray for her husband. And as time went on, they had a son. And like any woman, any mother in that situation, she wondered what would her son be like? Would he grow up to be like his dad? Would he follow after the world? Or would he love Jesus Christ? And so Monica began to pray for her son as well. And as her son grew up, you know, much to her joy, he was a brilliant young man. He became highly educated, became an orator, a philosopher, and a teacher. In fact, he was one of the most highly educated men of his day. However, he was also, to Monica's dismay, an immoral man. He chased after women constantly. In fact, when he left his parents' home, he moved in with a concubine a woman that he did not marry, though they, in fact, had a child together. Monica's first child was born out of wedlock, and so Monica was heartbroken as to where her family was going. But she continued to pray. She continued to press on and persevere and pray for her family year after year after year until finally, just before her husband passed away, God answered her prayer. Her husband gave his life to the Lord. In fact, he was baptized shortly before he died. But her son still remained very cold, very distant from the gospel, and didn't really want to have to do anything with Jesus. And so Monica continued to pray. And she prayed and she prayed. And after 30 years, God finally answered her prayer. Her son was walking in a garden, in sort of a courtyard, and became overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit and convicted him of his sin and the sins he had been running away with. 
And the Holy Spirit worked in his life. He sat down, opened up a Bible that happened to be sitting beside him to the book of Romans, and he gave his life to the Lord. Monica's prayer, after nearly her entire lifetime of praying for her son, finally was answered, and he trusted in the Lord. And the amazing thing is that Monica died not not long after that. And so she never got to see what actually became of her prayers. What was the end result of all of those long years of prayers? Yes, her son was saved. But in fact, he went on not only to become a church leader, became one of the most influential church leaders in all of Christian history. His name was Augustine. In fact, he's the reason for the entire Protestant Reformation is because people went back and read his works. Monica's prayers had ended up changing the entire course of Christian history. So my encouragement to you mothers this morning is, never think that your prayers are of no use. Never think that your prayers for your family just fall on deaf ears and that nothing will happen. God delights to answer our prayers for our families. So be encouraged and pray for your families. But I share this not only because it's Mother's Day and I want to remind us of the importance of motherhood, but in fact, it's a story that displays the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It shows how the Holy Spirit changes hearts and changes lives, takes them from being cold and against the gospel to actually loving the gospel. And in fact, as we open up to the book of John, that is exactly what we're going to see. So if you have your Bibles with you, please follow along with me in John chapter 16. I'm going to start in verse 1. Here now, brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. I have said these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. As far the reading of God's word, would you pray with me? Father, this morning, as we come before your word, Father, I pray, would you give us your Holy Spirit? Would you impress on our hearts the glory of your gospel that is seen 
Father, that we would no longer be hard-hearted and averse to what you would teach us. But Lord, as we come before your word, would you soften our hearts? Would you give us a heart that loves and longs for you? We ask these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, our passage is really jumping into the middle of a conversation. If you've been here uh, for the past number of weeks, you'll know that Jesus has been teaching his disciples just before he goes and is put to death. He's going to be crucified in a short while, and really all the way back from chapter 13 in John till here, Jesus is teaching his disciples. He wants them to know what's going to happen when he leaves. And in fact, verse 1, Jesus says, I have said all these things to you. And so we've got to stop there and just hold on and say, well, okay, what has Jesus been saying? What is it that Jesus has been teaching his disciples? And really, we don't have to go very far back. Just jump back into chapter 15, what we talked about last week. And Jesus tells his disciples two things. Verse 18, you'll see the first one. The first is that the world will oppose you. If you go out and you are following after Jesus Christ, the world will actually oppose you. The world will hate you, in fact. There is a persecution that is coming. There is an opposition. People are not going to just love everything that you're going to say to them. The world is going to oppose you. But that's not all that Jesus says to them. In fact, verse 26, chapter 15, Jesus then promises first that opposition is coming, and second, so is the Holy Spirit. In fact, they were not to go through all of this opposition, all of this persecution alone. They were to go with the Holy Spirit with them. And so Jesus says to them in chapter 16, verse 1, he says, I have said all these things, that persecution is coming and the Holy Spirit will be with you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is wanting to reassure his disciples that as they face suffering, they are not alone. So the first point this morning I just simply said is the Holy Spirit in suffering. The Holy Spirit is given in times of suffering. In fact, look at verse 2. Jesus says, They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, a time is coming when whoever kills you will think that he is offering service to God. Jesus says, not only is the world not going to like you, not only are they going to hate you, not only are they going to oppose you and persecute you, they will put you to death, and they will do it thinking they are serving God. And, you know, we really don't have to go very far in our Bibles to see this exact thing happening. If you go over to the book of Acts and you remember the story of Saul, later becomes the apostle Paul. When we first meet Saul... He is persecuting the church. He is putting Christians to death. And all the while, he is doing it, thinking that he is serving God. And Jesus tells his disciples in verse 3 why these things will happen. Verse 3 says, And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. And really, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus is reminding his disciples that he and the Father are one. That to reject Jesus means to reject the Father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus tells his disciples, the reason that people are opposing and are going to persecute you is because they have not known Jesus. 
unless we think to ourselves, well, okay, that's great, but I mean, that's for the disciples, right? The disciples, they're going to they're gonna have to suffer. They're going to be persecuted. They're going to be put to death. But I mean, me here, I live in Canada. I'll be just fine. I don't have to face any of that. Unless we think that way, look at what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In fact, it's a promise that the Bible gives to us that if we are going to follow after Jesus Christ, it means there will be persecution in our lives. We may not be put to death. No, we may suffer things like our reputation is gone the loss of friends, maybe the loss of even family speaking to us. It means that we may have to lose our job even. It means that people slander us, they talk back at us, they don't just disagree with us, they're coming after to attack and to hurt us. Jesus promises his disciples not an easy life. In fact, he promises them persecution and hardship. But of course, this isn't the only thing Jesus promises. Jesus says in verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. Jesus is telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit is coming so that they would not fall away. That when persecution actually hits them, they're not going through it alone. The Holy Spirit will be with them to protect them and to preserve them. Because the truth is, when we're actually going through suffering, when things are actually difficult and people are actually mad at us and coming after us, the real question is, am I going to make it through? Am I going to make it through this? And on the other side, will I have just rejected Christ? Will I have fallen away? Will I have run away from Jesus? And Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is given so that we would not fall away, that he might preserve us in our faith and keep us even in times of suffering and trial. And Jesus says in verse 4, But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared, to be prepared to face this suffering, because he's not just telling them it's coming. He's calling them to be prepared for what it will be like. So what does this mean? Let me give you an analogy. Let's say this afternoon, you're in your house and there's a knock at the door. You go to the front door, you open it up, and there standing before you is a man in full military fatigues, right? He's got the camo, he's got the bulletproof vest, a helmet, and he stands there and he says to you, I'm here to tell you that this afternoon North Korea has just declared war on Canada. And in fact, there are cruise missiles that are on their way and they will hit your house. You say, wow, okay. And he says, now, we have a bomb shelter prepared. In fact, it's got food, it's got water, it's got electricity. Everything that you could need is there. Here's the address. And you say, wow, thank you so much for telling me about that. That's, that's good news. Thank you for that. Now, when the bombs hit, I'll know where to go. What's wrong with that? When the bombs hit, it's too late, isn't it? He did not show up at your door to say, when the bombs hit, now you'll know where to go. He is saying, be prepared. Go to the shelter. Go where it is safe now. 
In fact, that's exactly what Jesus is telling to his disciples. The Holy Spirit is the one who will keep you safe, so rely on him now. Or maybe let me say it this way. Imagine that you were going to go play hockey. You've never played hockey before in your life, but you thought, you know what, it's time I learned. And so you join a league, and they tell you, okay, first game is going to be in two weeks. So you've got two weeks, and you go out and you buy all the gear. You get the skates, you get the pads, the stick, the helmet, everything, and you bring it all into your house, and you put it down, and you say, great. I'll put all that on in two weeks and go play. I can tell you how that game's going to go. It's going to go terribly. Your skates won't be laced up right. Your pads are on all funny. You don't know how to skate properly. Why? Because we haven't spent time to practice, to work on it, to actually invest yourself so that you know how to play by the time the game comes. It's amazing how often we in the Christian life approach suffering like that. You know, we, we don't prepare. We're not reading our Bibles. We're not learning what it means to rely on the Holy Spirit every single day so that when something actually comes, when that persecution that Jesus promised comes, it hits us like a bomb. And we're left wondering, what just happened? Jesus calls us to be prepared, to prepare ourselves for suffering. And the way that we are to do that is to learn to rely on the Holy Spirit. Learn what it is He is doing how he is leading, how he is guiding us in our daily lives. And so Jesus is not just calling his disciples, hey, there's persecution coming. He's telling them, be prepared and rely on the Holy Spirit. And in fact, that, this morning, that is exactly what we have begun to do. Begun to start searching the scriptures and see what does the Holy Spirit do in our lives. And the first thing we've already learned, he preserves us through suffering. But of course, Jesus has more to say. Second half of verse 4 begins a new paragraph. It says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Really, ever since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been telling his disciples that he has come from the Father, and in fact, he will go back to the Father. Jesus is going to leave, and in fact, he is going to die. And if you've been working through the book of John, you'll know the disciples don't always get that. They're often confused, but now it seems they're starting to understand what Jesus is saying. And in fact, it says they are sorrowful. They're losing their teacher. They're losing their leader. They're losing their friend. He's going to go away. But Jesus tells them they will not be alone. Verse 7, Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Now just pause there with me for a moment. Jesus is saying to his disciples, it is to your advantage that I leave. It's to your benefit that I won't be here. So we have to look at that and say, what, what possible benefit is there? Jesus tells us, verse 7, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says the advantage that we have as Jesus is left is the presence of the Holy Spirit. And you might say, what? 
I mean, I can't imagine anything better than having Jesus physically here with us, right? I mean, think about how easy that would make the Christian life. All we'd have to say is, there's Jesus. We're witnessing to someone sharing our faith. Here, go look and talk with Jesus. I mean, we could solve all of our problems that way, couldn't we? We'd go to Jesus and just ask him, what should I do? Should I go to school? Should I get a job? Should I get married? Should I move? Should we have more kids? All of it. We could just ask Jesus, right? It'd be so much easier. And yet, Jesus tells us, it is to your advantage. It is your benefit that you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is greater even than having Jesus physically present. So we have to ask, well, why is that? What, what is that benefit that Jesus is talking about? Verse 8, Jesus answers. And when, that is the Holy Spirit, and when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the first advantage that Jesus tells to his disciples, the reason why having the Holy Spirit is to their advantage, is that he will convict the world. He will actually work in people's hearts to convict and change them. And you might say, well, okay, is that, is that a big advantage? Is that something that's really necessary? Well, think back with me to the Old Testament. Do you remember the Old Testament prophets? They were often called by God in some very, you know, amazing ways. Think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. It's this fantastic story about Isaiah being called, standing before the throne of God, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and all around the throne there are angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the very foundations of the temple are trembling at the presence of God. And Isaiah stands there, and a voice comes out from the throne, Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, Here I am, Lord. Send me. And we read that and we think, yes, yes, God, send me out like that. I, I want to have a call like Isaiah. Send me out. I will go. And it's amazing because we almost never read the next verse. We never read what happens directly after what God calls Isaiah to do. The very next verse says, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. God tells Isaiah, your ministry will be one that is marked by misunderstanding. It's going to be marked by people with cold, hard hearts. They are not going to listen to your message. In fact, they're going to reject you. In fact, we know by the end of Isaiah's life, they put him to death. But Jesus... When he calls his disciples and he sends them out, he sends them not to a people with cold, hard hearts, but he sends the Holy Spirit to go and convict and to change people's hearts so that they would love Jesus Christ. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And Jesus begins to walk through each of those. Verse 9, Jesus says, Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Jesus tells us the very first thing that the Holy Spirit comes to do and comes to convict us of is sin. 
The Holy Spirit works in our lives to convict us of our sins. And Jesus says all of that boils down to a disbelief in Jesus Christ. It all boils down to a disbelief in God. Paul would later write Romans chapter 14. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Sin is a rejection of God. It's a rejection of his existence, of his rule, of his right, of all that God is. Sin says, I can do better, and I don't need God. And Jesus says the very first thing that the Holy Spirit will do is to convict us of sin. And you know, it's amazing because in the church, we so often talk about being filled with the Spirit. We want to be filled with the Spirit, and yet we almost never mean I hope the Spirit convicts me of sin. Yet that's exactly what Jesus says the Holy Spirit has come to do, to convict us of our sin. Secondly, the flip side of that, verse 10, Jesus says he has come to convict us concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Jesus tells his disciples he is going away. He will no longer be physically present. So the, so the example that Jesus gave of this perfect life of righteousness, this perfect moral purity that Jesus displayed throughout his entire life would be gone. And so Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is coming to convict us of what God demands from us. That perfect righteousness that God demands, the Holy Spirit will convict us of. So not only have we sinned, but we have fallen short of the standard that God demands. Thirdly, the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness, verse 11, concerning judgment, because the the ruler of this world is judged. You know, all throughout the book of John, whenever the ruler of this world is talked about, it's referring to Satan. And Jesus says, the truth is, is that Satan will be judged. In fact, the gavel has already come down. The sentence has been handed out. The wages of sin is death. And the truth is that anyone who would follow after the pattern of this world, anyone who would continue in their sin, is to be convicted of a judgment that is coming. Not merely physical death, but in fact spiritual death, eternal hell. Jesus says this is what the Holy Spirit has come to do, to convict us of sin, to convict us of the righteousness we have not upheld, and to convict us that there is a judgment coming against our sin. And you might say, well, that is horrible. That's a horrible ministry. I mean, why? Why would we long and work for something like that? Why are we even talking about that? That's just awful news. And the truth is, you're right. That is bad news. It is bad news. But if we do not understand the diagnosis, we will never search for the cure. If we don't understand our condition before God, we will never seek after the right treatment. And the Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our sins so that we are not satisfied with a band-aid when what we need is the ambulance. The Holy Spirit comes to convict us of our sins so that we realize that all we have in ourselves isn't good enough. But the good news is, that's not all the Spirit does. 
That's not all the Spirit has come to tell us. Drop your eyes down with me to verse 14. Jesus says of the Holy Spirit, He will glorify me. The work of the Holy Spirit is to draw us to Jesus Christ, to magnify His name, and to reveal to us the glory of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. That He has borne our sins. Though my sins ought to have been judged, they were judged on the cross of Calvary. Jesus died in my place. And instead of my tattered, sinful record of wrongs, I am given the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has taken my place. He has borne my sins. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. The work of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of our sins so that we would run to Jesus Christ as our only salvation, as the only hope for our souls. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let us rejoice that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts a conviction that leads us to Jesus Christ. And the good news is, is that the Holy Spirit does not merely work in our hearts, but it works in the hearts of others as well. In fact, he works to convict others' hearts as we are sharing our faith, as we attempt to share the gospel, and as we bumble and we fumble through and we think, "Uh, should I have said that? Should I have said something different? No, maybe I should have done this. I don't know. I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit is at work to convict people's hearts and to draw them to Jesus Christ. Oh, let us rejoice that the Holy Spirit has come, for the advantage is that we have come to know and love Jesus. Not only does the Holy Spirit keep us from falling away, He works in our hearts to draw us to Jesus Christ. It is to our great advantage that the Holy Spirit has come. The last point this morning is the Holy Spirit in the Christian life. Verse 12 says, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Jesus says to his disciples, look, I I know that's a lot to take in. That's a lot to deal with. It's a lot to, to work with. And so Jesus tells them, I understand that. And so there's going to be more later. And you might ask yourself, well, hold on, Jesus. You're about to be crucified. You're about to leave. Who is going to teach what you have? Of course, if you've been following along with this passage, you'll know the answer is already obvious. Verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. The Holy Spirit is coming to teach and to lead and to guide Jesus' disciples. His work is so that we might know the truth, that we might come to know and love and delight in the truth. And we say, well, what is that? What are we supposed to learn? What has Jesus not yet told him, told the disciples? Verse 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said, he will take what is mine and declare it to you. The truth that the Holy Spirit imparts to us is the glory of Jesus Christ. 
is how to live our lives in such a way that everything that we are doing, every aspect of who we are is done in honor to glory Jesus Christ, to make his name known and to make his name magnified. And you know, verse 15, it's this beautiful picture of the Trinity, isn't it? Jesus says, all that the Father has has been given to the Son, and all that the Son has is given to the Holy Spirit this beautiful community and the equality within our triune God. And yet, even though the Holy Spirit is fully God, he works to see Jesus' name magnified. He works to see Jesus' name glorified. Brothers, if we are to be led by the Holy Spirit, it means we are to be led to glorify Jesus Just as the Holy Spirit does not work for his own glory and honor, he works for Jesus. We are not to work for our own gain, for our own honor or glory or fame of our name. Rather, we are to know and to delight in giving glory to Jesus Christ alone. So that everything that we do, how we live our lives, how we use our money, our finances, how we use our time and our energy, how we speak to our coworkers, to our wives and to our children, all of it is wrapped up in giving glory to Jesus Christ. As I close, I'll invite the band to come up. And let me just read to you the words that Paul writes in Romans chapter 11. He says of Jesus, For from him... And through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In fact, all things are wrapped up in Jesus Christ. And that means if we are to live a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, to boldly face persecution, it means we are to be wrapped up in glorifying Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the greatness of your gospel. We thank you for the promise that whoever would come to you in faith, whoever would put their trust in Jesus would be saved. Father, I pray, would you send your Holy Spirit to work in our hearts, to convict us of our sins, and to lead us to give honor and glory to Jesus Christ. Father, I pray, would you continually conform our lives into Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name. Amen.